you don't have to get this moment exactly right, but you do have to be aware as to how much uh, how much you're putting into this now, so that when you come back to it, you can refine that detail. Welcome to the Emergency Mind Podcast. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is a space where we train ourselves to think and perform better during times of crisis. ER doctors or not, we all face emergencies in our lives, and this podcast is all about getting better at acting during times of uncertainty and stress and learning how to apply knowledge under pressure. To learn more about building your emergency mind and to dig deeper into many of the concepts we get into in this podcast series, head over to our website at emergencymind.com. Our guest this episode is Dr. Kimo Takiesu. Kimo is a board-certified emergency doctor and an attending physician at Massachusetts General Hospital, where he serves as the director of the Harvard-affiliated Emergency Medicine Residency Medical Education Fellowship, as well as the Departmental Simulation Officer for Emergency Medicine at Mass General Hospital. In addition to these academic roles, he's the co-founder of Minerva Medical Simulation, which is the creator of the serious medical game Full Code, designed for training in emergency medicine, diagnostic reasoning, and cognitive rehearsal. When I was in residency, Kimo was one of the associate residency directors, and he was incredibly instrumental in my personal development as an emergency physician. In our conversation during this episode, we talk about the importance of accepting our limitations, of staying present in the moment, and of building and utilizing structures of decision support to improve our thinking under pressure. Interestingly, we also cover gazelles, cheetahs, race cars, and fine art painting. There's a lot here, so let's get to it. I hope you enjoy. Kimo, thank you so much for coming on to join us, man. It is uh, an honor and a privilege to get to talk with you about this and, and, and great to sit down in front of you, so to speak, and, and get back into this. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Um, I was hoping we could start uh, maybe towards the beginning of your career. If, if you put yourself back in time a little bit um, and think back to when you were a resident or even a medical student something in that in that sphere. Um, what was it that got you involved in emergency care in general? Um, actually, you know, in medical school, I, so I went to uh, med school at um, the joint medical program at Berkeley and UCSF. And originally I was kind of headed into be, uh, the, be in the world of education um, and then kind of sidestepped that and decided to go into medicine. And during medical school, the one thing I wanted to be was a transplant surgeon. And, uh, you know, then I took acute psychiatry and I said, wow, this is, an, this is amazing. I get to see all of these different ways in which people can view the world through both, you know, psychiatric disease and real world disease. <clears throat> and I think the, that opened my eyes to the idea of I wanted to do uh, more to treat a wider breadth of humans uh, than was either in acute psychiatry or transplant surgery. And one of my good friends said, you know, have you thought about uh, emergency medicine? And I completely hadn't because it wasn't part of the core curriculum, certainly at that time. Um, and then I took a rotation, rotated at Highland and was forever convinced uh, that that's where I wanted to be. And I think the the mission was so... Uh, in line with the way in which I wanted to live my life. Uh, the idea that your safety net care, you treat anybody who walks in day or night, you see the range of the human condition, um, all of those things lined up with what my own 
kind of sense of morality was uh, and still is. And I think being able to serve people, um, uh, no matter what their condition is, no matter what their um, direction in life is, uh, equally um, was uh, definitely unique. Um, and uh, I was just thankful that I found it. Hmm. And had you, had you trained as an educator before all of this? Um, in undergrad, I had done a lot of teaching um, in biology. And then likewise, when I was at Berkeley um, doing a master's degree, uh, the master's degree was in um, education. And I had done a lot of teaching there through the uh, graduate student instructor program. I'd also taken a year off before going to medical school and uh, taught what's the equivalent of middle school through high school uh, in a small uh, small town in England. Hmm. And when you were first getting exposed to emergency medicine, because like you said, it's not often included, even still in some cases, in sort of the core curriculum for, for medical trainees. Yeah. When you were first getting exposed to emergency medicine, what did it feel like in those first couple of times when you were in the room for, for a really critical patient? I mean, Highland is, Highland is no joke. There are some awesome doctors mm-hmm. and nurses and incredible teams up there with some very sick people. What did that feel like? Uh, it felt like I was really on the front lines of humanity. I remember um, working with people like Susan Promise and Carter for those for all those Highland folks out there. Uh, shout out to Carter. He was uh, he was the an iconic figure uh, there. Uh, lots of Dave English, uh, John Rose, lots of great educators and great clinicians. And what I remember was this feeling that when you walked into the room, the patient was really dependent upon you. And at the time, me as a fourth year medical student, um, to understand what their problem was, to not prejudge them uh, based on what they looked like, how they were behaving, what substances they might be intoxicated with. Um, And the challenge was to let go of your preconceived notions Uh, at the bedside and really try and figure out what was the true illness, what was the real reason why they were there. Um, And I think the, you know, a lot of the leeway that I was given as a medical student at Highland, uh, still very closely supervised, but supervised from a distance, uh, informed my way uh, in which I did residency education for years. Um, And I think being alone in the rooms with some of the patients there and really trying to figure out, I'll never forget this guy had done PCP and he was literally cuffed to the stretcher, bucking like a Bronco, as you know, and and almost like um, uh, tipping the stretcher over. And I remember he ended up uh, being an acute renal failure. He was in rhabdo. He had a K of like Mm 6.8. And he was sitting in this, you know, corner of the of a very crowded emergency department. And what really opened, I think, my eyes was that uh, here was somebody who I could have easily just blown off and said, let's, you know, we can sedate this guy and let him chill out and everything will be fine. But realizing that you really have to scratch more than the surface to understand what the pathology is that is surrounding you and that you you have to really delve deep, um, not just into the medical aspects of care, but the psychological predispositions that we all have in terms of our type one thinking uh, that we have to resist in order to really get down to caring for the patient who's in front of us. 
And how do we do that when there is the pressure of the busy emergency department around us, right? And and because what you said makes sense. Don't just scratch the surface, dig deep, try to understand what's going on with the patient in front of you for real, not just the first wave of what appears to be going on. And that is, you know, that is exactly what you taught me when you were teaching me how to be an emergency doctor. Um, but how do you do that when how do you do that when there is a busy full emergency department, when there is chaos going on? And, and, and maybe the analogy here to outside the emergency department is how do you accomplish, you know, any sort of a mission that requires deep focused thinking in the setting of a wide variety of other things that demand your attention and demand your time? Um, I would say there's two, two main things that I think of. The, the first is, uh, and I know, that you know, you, you you do martial arts. I've done martial arts in the past. And I remember one of my um, one of my senseis saying, "When you're fighting multiple people, so in order to get my uh, the my black belt certification and second degree certifications, you had to fight uh, play fight uh, two or three different people. And the coach the coaching around that was, don't focus on one person. Keep your eyes centered in the room around you." and use your peripheral vision to understand where people are. And I think that that really does apply to, you know, emergency medicine or disaster scenarios where you can't think of the patient in front of you. You have to think about the patient in front of you in the context of the other people who are around you. And that means that you can't delve too deeply into a single patient's narrative. You have to first start with how they look, you have to definitely talk to them to see if they can speak a full sentence or not. You have to use their vital signs. Um, and you have to develop kind of uh, a consistent sense of the people around you as they're coming in. It's very hard, but I think one of the mantras that I was taught during residency by Dave Peak was just keep moving. And as long as you keep moving, you'll be okay. But you have to keep swimming around to make sure that you're circling back to the patient who you might have missed something on, but ensuring that you're not missing any of the new arrivals who are coming in. And that's where our instincts as clinicians to be able to separate who's sick and not sick are really honed in seeing many, many, many patients and that we internalize those illness scripts they become part of our heuristics. And yes, heuristics are subject to failure, but as long as we're couching those heuristics in a way in which we're repeatedly gathering new information on the patients in front of us, we're less likely to fall into the type one error um, uh, or type one thinking. Uh, and we can get a little bit deeper on the patients who are the one in the crowd that are sicker than they really appear. Oh, so many, so many cool things in what you just said there. Let's let's like dive into that full force. So, so the idea of just keep moving, right? The idea of of not getting stuck or standing still is really important, right? Mm -hmm. Some of this has to do with just if you think of the, you know, the friction of making choices is easier when you start moving, right? And when you're in motion, you're more likely to stay in motion and and make better decisions. But, but. You know, that's not something that's always easy to do. In fact, the opposite is much easier. It's easy to get stuck. It's easy to get really stuck when you start seeing a particularly a very sick or a patient with a very complicated disease process, especially when you're more junior and you realize, you know, this person depends entirely upon me making competent actions here. Mm -hmm. um, how did you start moving past that? Or what's your advice for the person in that situation who maybe they even know they want to keep moving, but they find themselves sitting there stuck? Um, <clears throat> I think 
part of it is um, part of it comes with being wholly present in the present. Um, you know, you know, one of the one of the kind of essential pieces around meditation is right as you as you well know, um, you're trying to just focus on what your present existence is. And the past decisions that you've made, the past things that just happened to you, the things that you're worried about five minutes, five hours, five days, five years from now, you let all of those things go so that all of your consciousness is focused on the present. I think that that's really, really important because what it does is it allows you to forgive yourself for the things that you may have missed, that you're clinging on to, to spend two more minutes doing a chart biopsy or three more minutes doing something that may not be uh, helpful uh, to accomplish the goal of seeing many patients simultaneously or as close to simultaneously as possible. And you're not worried about what's going to happen five, 10, 15 minutes from now as well. You're really immersing yourself just in that patient in front of you. Um, I think that leads to much higher quality cognition around that single patient. Um, and I think it also entails a necessary uh, concurrent forgiveness of the self so that you are anticipating that you're not doing as good a job as if you had three hours to evaluate this patient. And you accept that and you recognize that and move on. You don't let the fear of missing something hold you back from moving on because you know that in 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes, you're going to be circling back and have an opportunity to go over that part of the canvas again. You know, my wife's a painter and um, she's been many, many different things, high school principal, et cetera, but the one consistent thing that she applies to her artwork, which she always applied uh, in education is that you don't have to get this moment exactly right, but you do have to be aware as to how much, uh, how much you're putting into this now so that when you come back to it, you can refine that detail. And just like painting, you go back to the area of the canvas that you need to build up. You're not going to get the perfect image straight off. Um, and that forgiveness in the present, I think, allows you to unstick yourself from the perfectionism that is so rife within medicine that often holds us back and actually prevents us from performing as well as we could. So accepting the reality of our limitations and our limited ability to care for everything allows us to stay in the moment and take care of this one patient in front of us because it frees us from the, the sort of time arc of what's going to happen and what did happen. Mm -hmm. But how do we balance that with the other thing you said a moment ago, which was the idea of, you know, and I, I don't know, maybe you taught me to say it this way, but the idea of sort of field control, of seeing the entire field of the of the emergency department all at once, because there's always that internal tension, that inherent tension between how do you best deliver your knowledge to this one patient, and also how do you judge your relative effort appropriately to take care of everybody that's there all at once. And my guess is that some of that has to do with what you just said, which is that you don't have to get every moment right constantly. There are some moments that you absolutely have to get right. It is life or death. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to intubate the person. That's the end. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not always the case, right? So part of it is probably that, the ability to turn on and off whether or not this is one of those moments. But, but how else do you balance that tension? Um, I think, you know, there's a great video online about um, 
uh, intubation. Uh, I can't remember the, the name of the person who did it, uh, but if you just Google uh, the gazelle and the cheetah, um, you'll you'll find this video. It's it's a fantastic video uh, done around emergent intubation uh, and in the day and age of PPE. And if you're the proceduralist, just like you said, or if you're running a code, or if you have a STEMI who's in cardiogenic shock in front of you, you need to be the cheetah. You need to be wholly focused on this one task and getting this one procedure done, this one patient stabilized. That is your only goal. Anything else will disrupt that process and lead to lead to failure in really high stakes uh, game. But the other person in the room, the kind of control person, is the gazelle, the one who's always on the lookout for what's the thing that's going to go wrong. Is the monitor connected? Are you in full PPE? Is there a gap in that? Do you have the drugs that you need? And I think that is kind of a focused example around intubation, but if we step back and apply that to the ED, most of the time in emergency medicine, I think we're honestly being mostly the gazelle. We're looking for the patient who is the sickest. And I think over time, as we learn, as we see lots of patients, which is why it's so important to see lots of patients during medical training, um, you develop those heuristics that allow you to pick out within about 30 seconds to three minutes, is this chest pain patient sick or not sick? Now, you're gonna get data on each of those patients, chances are, whether it's mm -hmm. just a set of vitals, an ECG, or labs, and imaging, whatever. But as that data comes back, we can re review that and revise it. But getting the history of present illness is always just so key. And if you can be there to get it for about a minute, two minutes, then you can kind of move on and get a sense as to who is sick in your department. And I think, you know, when you look at the American College of Emergency Physicians logo, you know, it's that grid of squares and one square is, is whited out. Um, I love that image because that is the one in the crowd who is sick. And hmm. I think it's truly representative of emergency medicine that most of our patients have chronic diseases, are coming in with acute complaints, but at the end of the day, there's a handful that we need to really keep an eye on uh, who have a serious diagnosis. And I think that leads to the efficacy of kind of keep circling back over and over again to gather the history, go back and look at the lab data that's coming back, and then come up with a final disposition. Uh, and iteratively doing that during your shift, that sets the landscape for who is in your department um, and allows you to kind of keep moving because it's actually, I think, more efficient and more productive so that you're not worrying about, I haven't seen those five patients that came in over the last you know, 30 minutes. And I wonder how, if any of them are sick. If you've already seen them for 30 seconds, you probably have a gut, gut check uh, in terms of how sick they are. You might not be correct, but at least you've seen them so that you have a visual sense of them in your mind's eye as to what your next move is going to be. Kimo, I, I love this idea of the gazelle and the cheetah, and I'm, I'm having a flashback here to a lot of the times we would work together uh, overnight in urgent, where there, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure the system has evolved since then, but where there are lots and lots and lots of patients spread over a wide area coming in with varying degrees of workup having been done, and you really are sort of being a gazelle until you turn yourself into a cheetah like that. And 
and here's my question, and I'm only half kidding about this, but when you do that, when you find a moment where you need to sort of switch gears in your mind, do you do you like whisper to yourself like you know cheetah mode? What is your... <laughs> Actually, underneath my scrubs, I have cheetah underwear. <laughs> Excellent. Um, Excellent. You no, know, I think you know it's interesting. I think this is where you know I talked to one of my friends who works in the community uh, at North Shore Medical Center. We've been friends since medical school. And his world in the community is, is in many, so many respects uh, different from what my world is in academic medicine, emergency medicine. And so for me, it's trying to, how do I approach the resident or PA or student who I'm working with um, and gently nudge them just enough so that they know that this patient really is sicker than they seem to be. Um, but without taking away their opportunity for independent thought or learning. Um, so that's, you know, my kind of cheetah thinking is I need to find who's taking care of this patient and I need to sit down with them, review the data and find out what their thinking is, tell them what my thinking is, and then we can kind of come up with a game plan to kind of jump on that patient and really spend 15 or 20 minutes making sure that the nurse is on board with the plan, moving them towards whatever it is, uh, you know, an Ativan drip or, you know, intubation, transferring them over to acute or whatever the next step is. Um, and I think, you know, in many respects, that's, the, that's a luxury that we have in academic emergency medicine. And I love that part of our job. My friend in the community, you know, it's all him. And so he probably does have the kind of cheetah underwear underneath his scrubs and is like, okay, now it's time to move on this patient, but it is all him uh, and his nurses caring for that patient. And so he has to be so much more forthright and directive in terms of what he's doing. Whereas my job is still to be one step removed so that I'm not usurping the learners in our midst uh, when a patient gets sick, because frankly, that's exactly at the leading edge of the learning process that we want all of our learners to be at. And unless they're allowed the opportunity to discover that and experience that, um, then we're, we're kind of um, taking away the highest value learning that they might have during that shift. Mm. And there's a bunch of stuff that's really interesting and, and, and implicit in what you just said there. P part of which I want to highlight is the idea that where we are doing our most important learning as a learner, because attending to student, we're all learning, right? Everybody's still learning. We're all upgrading yeah. and ha hammering on our craft over and over again. Mm -hmm. um, but where we're doing that learning the most is right on that edge where we're turning ourselves you know, from gazelle to cheetah or or whatever it is. And, and also, actually, I'll say turning back from cheetah to gazelle is almost equally as challenging, right? To go back out and see the field again. Um, I think it was uh, one of my other teachers at, at Mass General, one of your colleagues, Toby Nagurney, who, who taught me the phrase uh, to cone back out my attention. Mm -hmm. The idea being, okay, once you've done that critical procedure, now your next step of the procedure actually is to cone your attention back out and see the field again. And right. that, that rapid change of focus um, is so important. So, so that's where we're doing a lot of our learning. Um, implicit in that, of course, also is the idea that that's a thing that we can learn. We can learn that skill to be better at it. Mm -hmm. um, other, than, other than allowing your 
learners to make that transition for themselves. How else do you teach people that? And I guess the question would also be, if you are listening to this and you're not part of a residency that has wonderful people like yourself that are training them, how do people learn how to do this? Um, I think the most concrete one is, uh, you know, what I tell all of our all of our senior residents as they're going into their senior year, which is scan the board. You know, you're in charge of the of a big, you know, 25 plus patient acute care area where everyone is sick. It's just crazy. So, the only way to kind of regroup and to assuage that sense of uh, panic that can come up when you see like, oh my God, I don't know anything about these 10 patients, is to kind of scroll through the whole list, whether you're on whatever, whatever your you know, ED information system is, to run the board every couple hours and make sure that you know, uh, every couple of hours you're going through everyone's data. It doesn't take very long. And you know, with an electronic health record, you know, granted it's a lot of clicking, um, but to look at everybody's lab data as it's coming back and make sure that you're not missing that lactate of six on somebody who otherwise looks totally fine, but is just starting to become septic from a clinical standpoint, when in fact, from a physiologic standpoint, they've been septic the whole time in front of you. It's just that their immunosuppression or their age or their own physiology uh, is not showing it until the labs start to come back. So scanning the board, I think, is probably the first, second, and third way uh, to use the EHR in a functional way, which is, you know, about the only thing it's worth. Um, but it gives you that landscape uh, of who is sick in your department and who's not. And the analogy here to somebody outside the emergency department would be to start to develop um, structures of thinking and systematic ways of, of thinking and repeating actions that support your individual actions, right? In the same way that we might scan a board to look at our patients, somebody else might be, um, you know, developing a system that automatically checks three points on a, on a reactor over and over again to make sure that all the numbers are, I was going to say all the numbers are green, but you, you know what I mean by that, that, that everything is yeah. coming up, everything is coming up green. And I think there's a link here between this whole idea of, uh, you know, having a mind that's tuned like a cheetah versus having a mind that's tuned like a gazelle, and then also how to build support structures for our thinking. There's a lot of stuff that crosses over here between um, the whole idea of like uh, system one and system two thinking in the mm -hmm. whole, you know, thinking fast, thinking slow. But yeah. but it's not exactly identical, right? It's not that it's not that cheetah is fast thinking and gazelle is slow thinking. It's quite the opposite. Both of them just involve different mixes in the same way almost that a string would be tuned to a different tension to produce a different type of note, depending mm -hmm. on what you wanted it to do. Um, I don't know what my question is there other than like, man, this is really interesting to think about and I've got to dig into this a lot more. <laughs> Yeah, there's so much more, but I would go back to, you know, the nuclear reactor kind of example that you said, like, so how, what is the external validity of this kind of way of thinking, right? And I think you see this throughout. I mean, the comparisons, you know, I'm a simulation guy by trade, right? And so, so I've heard a billion times, as has all of us, well, the airline industry has been doing simulation for years and it's, you know, they have this error rate and medicine has this error rate and, <clears throat> Why can't we, we be more like the airline industry? I think that, you know, there's there's a lot of truths in that once you dig past that, you know, very superficial comparison. 
um, which has its limitations in terms of how much you can compare those two worlds anyway. But the one consistent thing is that, you know, an airline pilot, you know, when they're sitting down, whether it's a Cessna or a 747, is going through this checklist of all of the things that they need to be sure are working, even though they know that they're probably working, right? So you're doing 99% of the work that is not helpful, right? Does this work? Yes, it does. Does this work? Yes, it does. But you're looking for that 1% of the time where, oh no, this actually doesn't work and we wouldn't have known it until two hours into the flight. I think you know medicine, emergency medicine is is very similar in that way. In that, if you approach it as an iterative process, right? Each time you're going through these things, you don't want to waste your time, but you're going through looking for the things that are aberrant lab values, vital signs that are a little bit off. You can do that quite efficiently with an electronic health record. Um, without necessarily having to go in to see the patient. And if you're doing that in the background and then using your FaceTime with the patient to really engage them, to talk to them, to make sure that you're addressing the humanistic needs that our patients have, um, then I think you're, you're kind of able to win a little bit on both sides where you're making sure that they're safe from a data perspective. Um, and then you're using your, your FaceTime with the patient in order to kind of meet their humanistic needs, but also to use your clinical eye to gauge how sick or not sick they are. Um, so it's not, not meant to say you should be spending a ton of time in front of the computer and just clicking boxes, but it is to say that every hour, every couple of hours, surf the labs, make sure that just like as you might do a pre-rounding, um, that you're not missing something that's a really important detail. And the same goes for when I used to, you know, uh, drive race cars amateurly. You know, I used to think it was ridiculous that I'd have to check off 100 things about everything from my brake pads to changing my uh, brake lines every season, et cetera. But man, you pick up that one time where that one nut is loose or the one time where your brake calipers are actually not working and that has probably saved you a big crash or, or you saved your life. So I think that this is um, not specific to medicine or the airline industry. I, I think it relates to a lot of other industries, businesses included. Man, where do you even start with that? So I, first off, I had no idea you drove race cars and that's amazing. And we're gonna have to talk about that more in a minute. But the idea of developing your own in, because uh, actually an interesting parallel there in the airline industry and I would guess in the race car industry, for lack of a better word, there's there's sort of like this developed set of here are the things you need to check. And in some cases that exists within emergency medicine, and in some cases it doesn't, and it's sort of up to the person to sort of develop that for their own self in terms of what needs to be checked and what needs to happen. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking now about a time, sort of my first year out of residency when I was an attending on my own, working in a solo coverage shop, and um, ended up with a very uh, sick patient with a very difficult airway and ended up having to perform a crike on a multi-hundred pound human with epiglottitis. Um, really nice gentleman, thankfully survived this story I'm about to tell. And it was a really intense situation and it was one of these like, you have to be a cheetah thought moments. Um, and I remember reaching for the crike kit, which last week I had happened to double check that there was a crike kit as I was going through my own internal sort of sense of things, but I'd never bothered to check what was in the crike kit. And it turns out that was what was in the crike kit was just a single pair of forceps, um, which is mm -hmm. not 
anywhere near the right amount or set of yes. tools that it takes to actually accomplish the job. Um, and from that time on, I, I sort of became, um, you know, I, let's put it lightly, motivated to double check my backup equipment as part of my normal operating procedure. And that idea of, the, you know, the, the, the larger idea of which that is a microcosm is that you have to build that you are fallible. You are fallible in your thinking, no matter how good of a doctor you are, no matter how good of a whatever you are. And you have to build these structures of thoughts and systems that, that, that buttress you, that support you, and that are there to cover your, to cover your gaps. Um, and there's a, there's a great video of uh, Daniel Kahneman, the same guy that, that did the uh, thinking fast, thinking slow, mm -hmm. talking about somebody asking him, well, like, well, sort of like, well, what do we do about this? What do we do about the fact that human brains are fallible and that we're fallible? And his answer was really interesting, um, which was some version of like, you can't change it. You can't beat it. You cannot beat your physiology. You're only wired in a certain way. What you can do is build teams of people and systems that support you where you are weak and allow you to run faster where you are strong. Absolutely. I think that your example of checking the cry kit is an absolute truism <laughs> like i mean it is so essential to check your equipment because in our minds uh the beauty of being human is that you're able to convince yourself of things that may or may not be really true based on the last time you experienced them which may be 10 15 20 years ago and uh equipment changes over time the locations change our familiarity with that equipment changes uh, and that's why repetitive practice is so important, not just when you're a student or a resident, but when you're in practice uh, as an attending as well. And I know that, you know, for me, I've been out for God knows how long, 17 years now. And every time I teach a faculty airway session or talk about cricothyroidotomy or <clears throat> any of these procedures, I am always having to check my own knowledge before I teach it because my assumptions on what the equipment looks like or how, it, how all those pieces go together, they fade over time. And unless mm -hmm. I'm refreshing that cognition around that procedure or uh, that, uh, that approach or um, uh, my psychomotor skills around it to remind myself, when do I pass the scalpel to the other hand, et cetera, um, those things fade over time. And so I think iterative practice, and it, this goes back to um, not being, uh, not having too much hubris to, to be aware that it's okay to be continuously learning the trade and reminding yourself of it because these are the tools and skills that we, we have and we own, but we only own them insofar as we can remember them and practice them correctly. And everything fades over time. Uh, and so repetitive practice is, I think, really important. And the nice thing is that it also makes you feel less afraid, you know, when it does hit the fan and when you do need to perform because you know that you've prepared for it. Yeah, there's a, a philosopher, Krishnamurti, who says that there is no truth apart from daily life. The idea that the theory, everything you're learning, you know, as you said, you own it as long as you can apply it uh, when it matters, which I think is really true. And um, quick quick diversionary sidebar here for people listening that have just heard us have this whole conversation about a crike or a cricothyrotomy, and maybe you don't know what that is. It is um, a sort of emergency backup procedure when somebody is struggling to breathe, you're unable to pass a breathing tube through their nose or their mouth, and it involves 
essentially cutting their neck open and placing a breathing tube directly into their trachea. Um, I will make sure there's a, a video up of that somewhere. Um, but I want to go back for a second to something you said a moment ago, which is that sort of thinking about the idea of repetitive practice and, and iterative practice being so important. And maybe this is a great time to, to dig into the project that you've been spending a lot of time working on these days, um, which is the full code app. And, I, and I'd love to hear sort of what your philosophy behind that is and, and how you think it can help do some of what we've just been talking about. Yeah. the um, I think, you know, one of the things uh, I loved about doing residency education and medical student education was the contact time, uh, being able to kind of make ideas come to life and um, make learners feel comfortable about not knowing things and seeing them grow is, is enormous. One of the things that I realized, though, after years of doing simulation education and torturing you guys in the sim lab and over in the Strata Center, um, was that stuff, that education educational component is absolutely critical and necessary, yes. But there has to be not only a more efficient way of doing it, but there has to be a way in which we can allow learners to practice independently uh, and privately without the fear of failure so that they can go through the cognitive rehearsal that's so important in caring for common diseases and uncommon diseases. So toward that end, I was fortunate enough to um, uh, have a, a, a very accomplished programmer reach out to me and say, hey, are you interested in, in creating a, a learning tool for uh, residents and medical students? And we take what is in simulation and put it uh, into the virtual world. And so the, the app is really designed to allow iterative practice uh, with simulations that instead of taking 20 minutes or 30 minutes with a group of six with a mannequin in a facility that costs a million dollars is a downloadable app uh, that's relatively inexpensive and um, allows us to, I think, democratize, for lack of a better word, access to cognitive training like we would have in a sim lab and distribute that you know, across the globe. Uh, so that was kind of the origin theory of uh, of the uh, of the application um, and all of it is kind of based on the idea of constructivism um, constructivist educational theory I won't go I won't bore the listeners with that um, but as a as a reformed high school teacher uh, you know constructivist theory is basically that learning is the transformation of knowledge through experience. So experiential learning, active learning, as a lot of uh, people know it by, um, is uh, one of one of my uh, areas of interest. And so the app was was a way of kind of getting that out there to the masses. Awesome. It's also, as a sidebar, really fun to play. Uh, I was tooling around with it this morning on some of the new um, free stuff that you all have put out around the COVID-19 epidemic, uh, and it is it is really cool. That's great. Um, yeah, big fan. Um, Kimo, let's shift gears just a little bit. So we, we've been talking a lot about sort of how things work in the emergency department and, and how we learn and get better. Um, what would you say for folks that are listening that that maybe are not at all connected with the emergency medicine sphere? These same principles that we've been talking about, you know, what do you think that they can be doing to sort of improve their ability to perform under pressure? Um, I think going back to where, a little bit of where we started in terms of um, the forgiveness of the self. 
you know, per perfect is the enemy of the good. And, you know, whether you look at the, in the context of public health or a, you know, uh, a science fair project, if you approach things with the uh, mindset that it has to be perfect, you cannot afford to make a mistake, every detail has to be just right, then you may get halfway through the task, but is it better to be halfway through the task that's perfect and not, not finish it? Or is it better to be all the way through it, have it be imperfect, and then have enough time to go back and fill in some of the cracks that you may have left in trying to create this performance, this project. And I think that, you know, there's a there's a 80-20 rule in business, right? So that, you know, 80% of the work on a project is done uh, in the first 20% of the effort. Mm -hmm. And the other, uh, you know, 80% of the effort uh, leads to 20% more gain in terms of how much more finished that product is going to be, how much better that product is going to be. And I think there's, there's a lot of truth to that, that we can uh, afford to balance being efficient uh, with being effective. Um, and I think if we can forgive ourselves a little bit up front going into a new task that we're trying to master, whether it's learning an instrument, learning how to paint, learning how to bake bread, um, that, that it allows us to make mistakes so that they are not game killers for us, that we just don't get so frustrated or so disappointed that we walk away from it completely. And likewise, if, if it's something that we do for a living, if it's something where we can't afford to walk away from it at all and where we don't want to walk away from it, it allows us to keep moving forward um, and not feel like everything is resting on a single task or single performance, but it's rather the aggregate performance that we're going for over time uh, that is what we should be aiming for. First off, thank you for naming qu quarantine-friendly activities in your examples there. That's, <laughs> that's excellent. Um, functionally, though, what does that look like for you? So when you're working on something and and you find yourself at that edge where you're you're saying hey maybe i'm maybe i'm having perfection be the enemy of of good here and maybe i'm maybe i'm tripping myself in some sense what is it that you do right then how do you release that for yourself um i usually uh sit in front of whatever it is i'm supposed to be doing so i'll, I'll the most familiar example obviously is kind of editing or writing a manuscript <laughs> um I'm still working on this. This is a lifelong problem. Uh, but it is just putting pen to paper. It's just getting the keys going and typing out some words and putting something out there. As you begin to form this into something, then you have something to work with. But looking at that blank page or looking at that thing in your inbox and thinking, oh, I need to sit down with this and I need to start it and finish it and do it all in one go or have it be just right. Um, that is usually a task killer. It's one where um, you cannot stop working on it once you open it, and so therefore you're not going to even open it. It's there are so many other things that we all have going on in our lives that are so much more pressing or immediate needs um, that we don't want to kind of we can't get the activation energy up enough uh, to open that task. And so, you know, what my high school English teacher told me uh, was, you know, you don't have to write the perfect story right off the bat, but
but you do have to just write down some ideas. And I think um, this is, you know, I think J.D. Salinger was uh, was known for doing this, where uh, he would just take pieces of paper, sit down every morning, and just write, write mm -hmm. and write and write. And then he'd put the pa pieces of paper into a bin and eventually would have a stack of papers and then would go back to that, refine it, edit it, and that would become a story, whether it's a novel or a short story. And so just doing a little bit every day uh, can really add up to a lot. And, uh, and I think using time to your advantage, uh, I think, is the way to go because you're not going to get things right the first time around, not unless you're a complete genius. And even then, we get things wrong. So... Kimo, thank you so much. This has been awesome to talk with you about. As we're coming to the end here, do you have any sort of a challenge that you want to deliver to the people listening to this? Going back to the, the one of the themes that kind of came out of our conversation here, um, I, would, I would challenge the audience to take three minutes every day. It doesn't have to be very long. And whether you're a meditator or not, just take a moment to try and sit still notice your breath, and just think about being completely in the present. And the thoughts flood in, right, about what you did yesterday, what you're going to do in two hours. But just try and witness them and let them go. And just do that for a couple minutes a day. And see how things go after doing that for five or six days in a row. I've found that, you know, it really helps with my monkey brain. Um, and I think that you do not have to be a meditator or committed to any sort of philosophical point of view in order to take advantage of just some basic mindfulness practices. And I think that they can pay off uh, when it hits the fan and it's really busy. And you can remember that moment of being wholly present in the moment. Um, and uh, I think that that can benefit you, not just during peaceful times, but during times of struggle. Love it, love it. Kimo, thank you so much. Absolutely wonderful to talk to you on this. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emergency Mind podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, but more importantly, I hope you found something in there that you can use next time you find yourself in the middle of an emergency. As always on this podcast, our mission is to dive into applying knowledge under pressure, not to provide specific medical advice. Additionally, our opinions are our own and not those of our respective employers. To learn more about what we talked about in this episode and about building your emergency mind in general, head over to our website at emergencymind.com.